uh, go for launch. Five. Quiet, numbskulls. I'm broadcasting. Anything can happen in the next half hour. Four. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. This whole thing is insane. Three. Quiet, please. I am analyzing. Where's the kaboom? Two. There was supposed to be an earth-shattering kaboom. One. they seem, are not the results of mass hysteria. First eyewitness accounts of this grisly development came from people who were understandably frightened and almost incoherent. Officials and newsmen at first discounted those eyewitness descriptions as being beyond belief. However, the reports persisted. Medical examinations of some of the victims bore out the fact that they had been partially devoured. I think we have some late word of just arriving, and I'll interrupt to bring this to you. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes, morgues, and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. It's hard for us here to believe what we're reporting to you, but it does seem to be a fact. Welcome to a night of total terror. Night of the living dead. The dead who live on living flesh. The dead whose haunted souls hunt the living. The living whose bodies are the only food for these ungodly creatures. Night of the living dead. More shattering than your strangest nightmare. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Greetings, my fellow galactic travelers, and welcome back to Planet 8. This is your mission commander, Larry, speaking to you from our hidden base. Chief Engineer Bob is here by my side as always in the command center and circling Planet 8 in our orbital spy satellite is Reconnaissance Officer Karen. On this episode of Planet 8, we're going to be discussing the cinematic zombie classic, or is it ghoul classic, George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. And we have a very special guest. Somebody pinch me, I think I'm living dead. The one and only Judith O'Day. Thank you so much for joining us here on Planet 8. It is a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Let me kick it over to our chief engineer, Bob. He has a bit of history with you. Um, Bob, why don't you go ahead and give us a little background, and then we'll get into it. Well, yeah. I, I think it was actually uh, 10 years ago, this week, wow. actually. <laughs> and really? We did a Night of the Living Dead. We did Creature Features Night at the Giants game. 
And uh, San Francisco Giants, I can't even remember who they played. Uh, <laughs> I think they won that night. And uh, after the game, we had uh, John Stanley from Creature Features host uh, Night of Living Dead with Judith as a guest and showed the movie on the big scoreboard screen. Everybody got to go down, sit in the outfield, and watch the movie. So, so awesome. It was a blast. And nobody had to wear a mask. <laughs> the good old days. Yeah. <laughs> days. So uh, let's go ahead and start the interview, though. Um, Judith, why don't you tell us a little bit about growing up and how you became interested in becoming an actress? Oh, golly. I think that that started right from the get-go when I was about mm, that, that tall. <laughs> I can remember when I was about five years old, or maybe even a little younger, sitting on the stoop of my great-grandmother's house. We lived right next door to them in Ohio, Youngstown, Ohio. Mm. I would sit there and rock back and forth and back and forth. I'd sing any, any song that I could make up. I, I always seemed to, to live in my head, even at that young age. So I, I think I knew way back then that being in front of a camera or on a stage in front of an audience was something that I really needed to do. So when I was still in my single digits, I remember auditioning for an equity company, a touring equity company for children's theater that came into town. And uh, they were doing the Snow Queen, I believe. Mm. I was so thrilled. My parents took me. I auditioned and got the part. I was able to say, this is the Snow Queen's palace. Cold, cold. And uh, I won't bore you with it, but it was a phenomenal speech. But in any event, that, that started it all. Then I moved to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. When I was 15, mm-hmm. I auditioned for the Pittsburgh Playhouse, which at that time was just one of the, the best venues for live theater that we had, aside from any touring professional company that came in. They had three wonderful theaters, but I auditioned for a musical. They wanted choral members or chorus members. Fred Burley, oh, James Lawler, Bill Glennon, uh, Duncan Noble, these were all the wonderful people who were producing the show. I auditioned and got into the chorus. So right from the beginning when I was in high school at 15 years old, I would go to school during the day I would go to the theater at night and rehearse. We performed six days a week. It was a full, full, regular theater venue. And uh, I was fortunate enough to continue on. Um, I auditioned for other shows and was selected. And in Pittsburgh, then I continued not only on the stage, but in television, KDKA. TV, if anybody is familiar. Uh, I did variety shows for them. I then broke into radio 
and did uh, I was Dom O'Day in the morning at about five o'clock on WJAS. <laughs> I did the weather and the, uh, what was it? The weather and the traffic. But then I, I started commercial work. That's where I met Carl Hardman. And by the way, this, we're recording this on the 22nd of September. Carl died on the 22nd of September, I believe mm -hmm. it was 2005. So this, oh. this is uh, sort of a sad but a celebratory time. Mm -hmm. I met Carl. He had Hardman and Associates where we recorded all kinds of uh, commercials, radio, television commercials. I met Carl and Marilyn, lots of other people, Chuck Craig, if you're familiar with those names. Mm -hmm. Then I went on to Hollywood. I wanted to make it big in film. <laughs> I got a call from Carl within a year saying, George Romero, Russ Reiner, Jack Russo, and I are going to make a film. Do you want to come back to Pittsburgh to audition? Well, I jumped right on a plane, <laughs> went back to Pittsburgh, auditioned and was very, very fortunate to get the role of Barbara. Mm -hmm. That's how all of that came about. That's great. So you thought you'd have Wonder. to go all the way to Hollywood and you could have stayed home. I could have stayed home. <laughs> <laughs> I love the different uh, jobs that you had as you built your career and gained your experience, not only in the theater, but radio and television, you know, it's a completely different world from what I read uh, in breaking into the business, as it were. Um, yeah. But I love that you you went through the ranks, you know. Well, and, you know, I auditioned also for Carnegie Tech. This mm. was way back in the early 60s. And that at that time, Carnegie Institute was... Carnegie Tech instead of Carnegie Mellon, mm. I was accepted into their drama department. Oh, wow. This is something that my parents were thrilled about. And yet I had been working, making a living, not a living, I should say. I, w I was making a salary every Friday night. I'd pick up my paycheck throughout high school. And here I, I was breaking into the other aspects of entertainment, TV and such, I decided not to go to Carnegie Tech. Mm -hmm. I, I broke my parents' heart, or at least my mother's heart. <laughs> I said, I, I don't want to stop. I don't want to stop what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I, I so loved the commercial work and the radio work. And the, of course, the theater every night and the musical reviews. So I, I didn't stop. And the, there are parts of me that still have that, mm, that little bit of regret that I didn't go to Carnegie Mellon, but uh -huh. Carnegie Tech. So when you but went back to Pittsburgh for the uh, audition, yeah. do you have any idea what kind of movie you were auditioning for? I knew it was going to be a horror film, Bob. Oh, okay. I had no idea what it was going to be about. In fact, I never really got to read a complete script. 
we sort of worked from scene to scene to scene. I know that they, they had a full script, but I think it, it went through as we were filming quite a few changes along the way. You know, this is probably not an easy question to answer, but, you know, some folks, they, they have children and, and you can never pick which one's going to be the astronaut or the politician. Was there any inkling when you were making this film that it would just become this iconic um, movie that you'd have fans generation after generation built into it? Not at all. Hmm. None of us involved uh, ever even thought of that. Or I certainly didn't. I was a young girl of, uh, we started filming when I was 22. The film was released when I was 23. I think we were all so thrilled to be making a feature film outside of Hollywood. You know, we were one of the first to make uh, a film that really clicked. And of course, we had no idea back then that it would it would click as it as it has over the years. But we were just thrilled to be making a film. Had no idea what would happen to it. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I don't know if anyone was really into the horror genre. I think when they made the film, they just figured this might be the easiest genre to make a film or at least have a successful film in. You know, Bob, you're absolutely right. In fact, I can remember George saying that uh, they thought this would be a quick way to get to make a bit of money and then go on to make films that might have been more to their liking. <laughs> it's funny <laughs> how, how these things happen. George just lived and breathed zombies all his life. <laughs> That's true. I mean, we were even, we were even talking about uh, the fact that this movie kind of started the whole genre, really. Because yeah. before this movie, zombies were basically, you know, brought to life to be workers or whatever. And it was all the voodoo Haitian. So... Night Living Dead was the first one that actually brought the ghouls and the eating of the flesh and the, you have to shoot them in the head and that whole thing that like continues today all the way through up like to, uh, with The Walking Dead and everything else that's going on. We didn't realize back then, but we really broke boundaries when you stop to think of it. Some of the things that you just mentioned people eating body parts of other people. Nobody did that back in, in the film days back then. Uh, the fact that uh, a child actually murdered and, and ate parents, and that never, ever happened. It was, and I also think that we were one of the very first films that Really, what do they call them when you um, you want to you help me here? You, you want to make the money to to do the film, so you have not a fundraiser, but um, like a Kickstarter. Kickstarter, exactly mm -hmm. right. Back then, we had Image Ten. We had ten people who put in money for that film, 
to make it. Well, as we shot it, we didn't have enough money to finish it. But because Pittsburghers became aware of what we were doing, there was a tremendous interest on the part of so many different people in town that they began to contribute to the Uh. film as well. So we were one of the first Kickstarters, and that was way back in 1967. You had to be a personal Kickstarter, actually going face-to-face with people and asking for money. Oh, I think that's one of the hardest things in the world. I never did that. (laughs) So, you know, one one thing I have to ask, I'll do this before I forget. Uh, you know, obviously we were watch- rewatching the movie for the- when we were going to talk about it in this episode. And uh, I was sitting there with my girlfriend. I was telling her, you know, that's Judith running for the farmhouse, running down the road. Did you really do all that running barefoot on the road <laughs> and weeds and everything else? Yes, I did. Oh, I, I did. In fact, one of the very first scenes we shot was through the woods where there were all the, the trees and whatnot. Um, I, I had sh- uh, shoes on then, but when I lost the shoe in the uh, cemetery, right? Um, and, and actually that, that's quite a story. The first time I lost a shoe was at the house when I ran around to the porch when I fell, I was I was going hell bent for election, running around, <laughs> fell down, and uh, lost the shoe. George then did a pickup shot about a month or two later, with my losing the other shoe back in the cemetery. So there were scenes where I I did run barefoot, and the others when I did have my shoes on. <laughs> That's great. So, so you actually did, I mean, there weren't a lot of stunts in the movies, but all the falls and runs and everything, that was, that was you. They, no stunt people. Oh, no, no, absolutely. In fact, uh, everybody did his or her own stunts. If you were to get shot, boy, they'd tape you up with the explosives and just pray to God that you didn't burn up. It, and it was amazing to watch. Um, we did have some episodes where I think some some of the folks got a little burned, but um, mm-hmm. overall we were very, very fortunate. That's good. So no um, real uh, injuries during the movie then? No, not that I can recall. Um, I, I do think that there was one, and I'm trying to remember who it was with, but um, the fire that was set at night with the chair, etc., and um, with when they were throwing the Molotov cocktails later on, yeah. I believe that uh, one of the the zombies got, or one of the ghouls back then, uh-huh. was caught on fire. They just doused him with a towel or whatever, and we just went on filming. You never wow. thought stopping back then. You just did it. Huh. I was wondering, in filming the movie, was it filmed um, scene to scene or was it out of order? You know, some films they'll film like the middle before the ending and, you know, it's 
kind of oh, about a story. It was filmed out of order. Yeah, it was filmed out of order. Okay. Yeah, but when I say that, I, I should backstep a little bit. Uh, we started in the cemetery, mm. then we moved to the house. And so maybe, maybe I should take that back. I think that we did follow uh, basically the, the script. But what happened was when we ran out of money, mm-hmm. it took an hiatus of about two weeks, two or three weeks in order to build up a little more finance. And um, we came back and were able to do pickup shots that George discovered we needed to do in order to to make the um, consistency throughout the film. But I, I think, Larry, you're right. We, we did follow the script fairly accurately. Mm. Well, was there a lot of ad-libbing or were you able to say, well, well, how about this? Or was it pretty straightforward? Let's go with the script. I know on my part, there was ad-libbing. In fact, one of uh, my favorite parts in the film was when I was telling Ben in the house what mm-hmm. happened to Johnny and me. Mm-hmm. That was all I'd live. George said to me, here are the, the main things that I want you to put in. I want you to mention the candy. Uh, I, and there were things that I had to put in. And that, but he just said, do it the way you, you'd feel it or you'd want to do. Mm-hmm. I remember doing that and getting so wrapped up and emotional about it. I, the snot was coming out of my nose. and We finished that scene. Uh, the audio, Gary Streiner, who was running audio then, said, oh, God, I don't know if I got it. I, I'm going to have to run it again. Oh. So we, we did the whole thing again. And, of course, it was ad-lib, but if, it's never going to be the same. Mm. What you see in the film was actually the original, the very first. Oh, uh, wonderful. He was able to get all the sound, and (laughs) we were able to do that. But that was ad-lib. I'm not sure how much anyone else did, but often George would give us the idea of Uh what we wanted, and then we would take it from there. Well, and I will say, uh, I watched. we all watched the film getting ready for the podcast, and my wife had never seen the film. Oh. And uh, she, uh, you know, enjoyed it, it. It did my heart good that there's someone who never saw the film and can appreciate all of the acting, all of the action, the story and everything brand new. You know, it was a wonderful thing to be there with her experiencing that. Well, please tell her thank you, because I think that's one of the the biggest concerns I have. Does the film hold up? Can mm. somebody who's never seen it before watch it now and remain interested in it? Well, I, I will say, at least for my wife, yes. <laughs> Bless your wife. Thank you. Thank you. Judith, I was wondering... Um, You know, for a good portion of the film, Barbara is in almost a catatonic state. She's so shocked. Um, What sort of preparation did you do or what what did you draw on to to play that out? 
Wow. I think I, I cannot honestly tell you I focused on one thing, but I, I do know that because what was happening was so new and unusual, no one had ever seen this kind of thing happen before, that mm -hmm. I, I focused on the fact that how, how do you explain it? I just saw my brother killed and I saw him killed by somebody who looked dead. Mm -hmm. I, I think I just felt it was right to go in and think about this because I didn't know how to act in the real world. How, how do you just carry on uh, yeah. when you see something like that happen that's never happened before? I wish I could tell you, Karen, that, that I had a special focus. One thing I can tell you is that the fear, uh, the terror that sometimes hopefully you saw me uh, present on the screen did come from when I was a very little girl. I must have been, oh, seven, eight years old. My parents took me to see the House of Wax in three with Vincent Price mm -hmm. in the theater. They, they had no idea what it was about, but they thought 3D, let's all go see. I was so terrified that it affected me and still does. It has affected me my entire life to see that burned face and have, remember when the woman pounded on his face and it cracked and I, yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I literally dragged them out of the film. I was so frightened. Oh, wow. That was something I did go back to, to use. Well, your performance is very convincing in Absolutely. the movie, yeah. And you know, Judith, I can't help but think that there are actors and actresses now that are going to be in a genre film, and they'll refer back to what well, Judith O'Day in the original Night of the Living Dead. I want something like that. You know, in all things in life, there is a first, and your performance was the first in that genre, and it was brilliant. So, again, thank you. Whoa. I don't know what to say to that. Thank you. <laughs> I mean, well, we're actually coming up at the end of our time with you. I, I wish we had more time. And, you know, at some point, maybe we'll bring you back just for, for more of a uh, get together. And, and just uh, there's so much more I'd like to talk with you. I'm sure we all would like to talk with you. And we want to thank you very much for being here with us today. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I hope I didn't run away and, and talk too much, uh, but it was a delight to be able to share with you. Oh, not at all. It, it was a pleasure, uh, absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. You bet. Take care. Be safe, okay? Indeed, and to you all. Oh, yeah. Thank you. We have a special guest visiting Planet 8 for the first time, friend of Planet 8, Mr. Lobo of Cinema Insomnia. Straight away, we're going to kick it over to Mr. Lobo. Mr. Lobo, when were you first exposed to Night of the Living Dead? Exposed, yes, the radiation from <laughs> Venus that I got exposed to. Uh, first of all, welcome, uh, thank you so much, and uh, hello, everybody. Uh, so great to be on, on the podcast. Yes, uh, sir. Welcome, welcome to Planet 8. 
And I'm sure this is probably, I mean, I, the Night of the Living Dead, of course, was made for drive-ins, but I was very, I was way too small to see it in the drive-in. Um, but I did see it on television, uh, on on Creature Features. My dad was watching it, and I was, I was, that was way too much. I was hiding <laughs> under the, uh, I was in my Spider-Man pajamas, wetting myself <laughs> Mm-hmm. under the co- coffee table so i don't even know if i saw uh, 20 continuous seconds of that movie because it was so <laughs> mind-blowingly terrifying uh much much more raw than anything i'd ever seen on tv and certainly much more raw than anybody had ever seen on television what's interesting about and i'm assuming everyone in the room is a bob wilkins fan but um uh oh, but yeah. yeah oh yes. yeah Creature features, uh, you know, Bob always had the boast that they were the first to show it on television and certainly the first to show it on cut. What was interesting is that it was part of a package. Uh, we, You know, and becoming a horror host and kind of learning a little bit about that world, I sort of found out that, you know, movie these movies kind of went around in packages. It, originally, Screen Gems sold all the Universal movies to TV, and we had our first wave of horror hosts like Vampira and Zachary and those guys. Mm-hmm. And then when it got to Bob Wilkins, and what was interesting is those movies were all the classics, right? But when it got to Bob Wilkins' time or the Silver Age horror host, the, the package that was going around was actually called the Creature Feature Package. Mm-hmm. So they basically, just like there were so many shows called Shock Theater, Right. There, was, there were so many shows that were some, the name of the show was some variation on creature features or creature double feature or creature mm-hmm. creature feature versus creature features. All those different variations of the name came from people, uh, different stations having their spin on that package. So at the same time that Bob Wilkins was showing it, Count Gordeval in Washington, D.C., which is about you know a couple hours from here, was claiming that they were the first to ever show <laughs> on on TV, uh, uncut, unedited. But uh, so so basically, it is for a t- for a television. It truly is a creature feature. It's a creature feature phenomenon. Mm-hmm. I think that was the first time anyone ever saw it was hosted, you know, or part of that kind of a show. So right. anyhow, so that did so you did you guys watch it uh, on creature features? Well, I'm I'm going to guess that because Bob's older than us, he usually sees these films in theater or drive-in. <laughs> Bob. Uh. <laughs> well, I wouldn't have been that old because uh, without giving out my age, because I'm sure a lot of people that listen aren't really good at math. So <laughs> I was seven. You don't want to have to take off your shoes. Or I was seven. I was seven years old at the time. But actually, no, the first time I saw it was on Creature Features with Bob Wilkins. In fact, I think I was in either seventh grade, I think. And this friend of mine called me up and he said, Night of Living Dead is on Creature Features tonight. You have to watch it. And I was like, ah, that sounds kind of scary. And uh, <laughs> he says, no, you have to watch it. And not only do you have to watch it, but you have to sit in a beanbag chair. Yeah, that was kind of the era. You got to sit in a beanbag chair in the middle of the room with the lights out and watch it. Ooh, that beanbag chair is slowly eating you. Oh, man. Yeah, because, you know, you don't know what's creeping up behind you or from the side or whatever. And 
So I did. did it, anyone you know, ever? Anyone ever barricade their door? Anyone ever push anything against their door while that movie <laughs> was on in my house? Because when I got older, and I I remember I was home alone for the first time, and it was on TV again, or we had rented it, and I just remember just uh, bare, literally pushing something against the door because I thought just in case. Well, you know, we're, we're in the house I live in, which is actually the house I grew up in. When you open the door to go down to the basement, the stairs kind of go off into an abyss because they're lit for about halfway down and then it's just black. So growing up, I always figured the ghouls were down there in the basement. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know. so I would like. I would have dreams. Cooper, you would have been upstairs. Yeah. No, yeah, no, I yeah, would not go in the cellar. But no, I, I would have dreams where I'd like open the door and look down there, and I could hear them, you know, thrashing around down there. And it's funny because that door has a, a doorknob lock and a chain, and I put that on every night to this day. <laughs> and I just, I just like admitted. So Debbie and the kids, why I do that the other night. <laughs> so, you know, the garage door is down there and I can flip the switch off on the garage door so it has no power so no one can get in there. But I still put you know, the I still put the chain and the lock on that door. <laughs> well, you know, if the zombies come back, they're going to come through the ground and, you know, that's going to be their <laughs> access point. So, you know, I think it's yeah. totally sensible. But I also like when I'm out walking the dogs, I like, as I'm strolling along, I'll look at the houses and think like, okay, that one would not be good because there's way too many windows ground level. <laughs> you have to like block all those windows or, you know, or this door is too accessible or whatever, or, Hey, that would be a good one because all the windows are, you know, at least eight, 10 feet off the ground. You know, those are the things you have to kind of keep in mind when you buy a house too. And make sure you have a jar full of nails, long nails. (laughs) (laughs) Boards and nails just sort of laying around. around. Disposable coffee tables or interior doors. You could run into today, open up a drawer somewhere, and there's just a box full of nails and stuff. You know, grandma and grandpa had that stuff, but like our generation, forget it. <laughs> you're, you're not going to find any of that anywhere. You can't yeah, even find a pen. Right. Yeah. Forget it. Or, or just, just get it on Amazon. <laughs> you ever go into someone's house and try to find a pen or something to write with? Right. It's not happening. Or, Karen, you know, you just open the closet you and there's a sh- film, Karen. Oh, well, so, yeah, you guys are, are all my uh, Bay Area boys. I was down in Southern California. And so um, I just remember. My first exposure was reading about um, Night of the Living Dead. I had this big book called Cult Movies, and I think it was by Danny Peary. Some, I think that's the guy's Oh, yeah, name. I've seen that book. Yeah, it's a, a great book, and it had Night of the Living Dead in there. And I was like, oh, my God, I got to see this movie. And then I started reading more about it. It seemed like it kept popping up everywhere. And they were like, oh, it's this forbidden film. It's horrific. You'll never, you'll freak out if you see it. And so I think it was when I was 16, one of the stations down in L.A., I forget if it was like KCOP or KTTV, they used to show all the scary movies. And they were like, we're going to show it for Halloween. You you know, you guys, oh, my God, it's been, you know, banned and we're finally going to show it. So me and all my friends were like, oh, my God, we got to watch this movie. And we had like a big party and we're getting ready for it to come on. And we it totally and we were like 15, 16 years old. It freaked us out. 
you know, just because it was that stark, almost documentary style, you know, the black and white and everything. And it was almost because it was so amateurish, it seemed believable, I guess. Because, uh, you know, there'd been other things we'd seen since then, I guess. But it, and I guess at that point, it wasn't, um, there wasn't a whole lot of gory stuff yet. But, uh, yeah, it was just, because uh, we thought we were going into it kind of like, oh, hee hee, fun, you know, and then everybody's just sitting there silent after like 15 minutes or so, you know. <laughs> and, uh, I just remember going home being all freaked out and I don't think I slept very well that night. And yeah, you know, it changed your whole mental attitude about stuff. Like looking at houses and like, well, where, where would I be safe and what could I do? And yeah. So imagine we, Karen telling her father, we need a jar of nails. <laughs> Stop by home Depot on the way home. Why don't we have any boards in the garage? Dad, what the hell is wrong with you? Oh, my dad, man, he used to have tons of boards and things. It was, like, amazing. He he was set. He didn't really Although, believe in stuff. But. I, have to, I have to say, uh, being out here on the East Coast now, people are a little more worried about tornadoes and hurricanes mm-hmm. and, you know, uh, extreme weather. So maybe that wasn't, you know, because our house that I'm living in now is a pretty much a dead ringer for that farmhouse. This is <laughs> the oldest house in our neighborhood i think this house is well over 100 years old Uh and it definitely has all those looks that the night of living dead house is except it's you know of course plastered floor to ceiling with hipster garbage (laughs) (laughs) vhs tapes and board games and so it doesn't look you know doesn't look anything like that but I feel like, uh, you know, maybe they had maybe maybe that is more common, especially if you think a, if you think, a, a, you know, a tornado or a hurricane is going to mm-hmm. uh, come to you, come take you to Oz, you know, maybe boards and nails against the windows maybe was a little more of a thing. I don't know. Zombie yeah, NATO. Well, what about now, you, Larry? Like, uh, uh, oh, well. <laughs> I was probably five or six years old. My my cousins were much older than I was. And so they would always talk about, uh, you know, the legend of Hell House and The Exorcist and Jaws. And they'd expose me to these films. So it really stunted my emotional and psychological growth in ways that. <laughs> um, but you were brought up right. It was. Bob, you know, and usually Bob had a good time, but I remember, not a disclaimer, but it was like, you know, you're going to watch, you know, just get under the covers or whatever. And I I probably fell asleep, I, you know, before the whole thing was over. And I've seen it, you know, as we all have many times since then. But I'll tell you, I was watching it the other night with my wife who'd never seen it before and and usually when i'm watching something for the podcast or you know just something on my own uh jazz will just kind of like do her own thing on her phone everybody has a phone now or a tablet but she puts down her phone and she really got involved and so it's a testament to what george romero did when he made this film that even today you know uh, it still has a resonance and and you know she was asking all these questions about why did it end that way and what did that mean and and i'm like yeah that you know that's the kind of film this was Uh, you know it wasn't just the first 
zombie movie or you know a movie about ghouls it, it had like a message and it had you know back then there was no cgi people had to act yeah. <laughs> it's not taken away from any of the actors today not not trying to dig at them no but, but they couldn't go back and you know put in dramatic pauses and make them blink more and all exactly. the things that they do to give a better performance out of some of the actors Right, and and it it there, there's kind of a perfection in that imperfection, um, you know. And I I told because we're big fans of The Walking Dead, and I said, well, back then, you know, do do the zombies talk? Do they not talk? Do they walk? Do they run? Do they coordinate their attacks with people? Do they use tools? Because you know, the daughter, the little girl, uses the trowel yeah, to. That, there's a well, you know, zo- zombie number one chases a car with a rock. So, you know, all this right. stuff about, oh, they have to shamble and be slow and they, and they don't use tools. It's like zombie number one chases a car and tries to smash the window with a rock. So that and that, that, that goes right the out house. the window. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah cause it was funny because when I, I was watching it the other night with Debbie and uh, yeah, I just pointed out and say, look, you know, this guy's using a rock. You know, usually they say that they can't use tools. And then you've got Karen later yeah. in the movie that uses the garden trowel mm-hmm. and she actually like looks around a little bit before she like finds this yeah. trowel it's like all right yeah. she's thinking you know she's doing she's they're trying not, to figure this out mindless they're not mindless there's something mm-hmm. there's something else about them and the the other thing that really worked was you know i'm big on the music but just some of the um, it, it almost sounded like a theremin when they'd reanimate, like, you know, and, and it gave yeah. that really weird, you it know. It was interesting, you know, it, it, we have all this modern music where they're remixing and they're adding weird sounds. But that movie, it's like they took a bunch of library music, kind of scrambled it all together, and then they put this wash of strange electronic noises into it. <laughs> So yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot happening in that soundtrack that's really effective, visceral, very visceral. Yeah, well last last time I was at Monster Palooza, I picked up the two LP set of the soundtrack for Night of Living Dead. Mm. And uh even though they're full size LPs, they're at forty five RPM, which people who probably don't know what I'm talking about. But anyway, it's you know 45 what? Records, RP. <laughs> records outsold CDs for the first time this year. Oh, that's so a true. lot more people wow. know what you're talking but about. But yeah, these are 45 RPM so that the sound is better. And the sound on, on them, even though it's all library music, is just amazing. And they went back and they found all the cues and got them all on the, on the album. And uh, it's, yeah, I mean, the soundtrack for that movie is, is great. And they were talking about um, using gobos everywhere, which is like these metal pieces that go on the front of lights and you cut patterns in them which is what they used to do in the old noir films so it's, it's almost it like makes this look like a noir horror film mm. yeah i love gobos uh i we did a retro slinky commercial once and i, I remember uh having a, an old school lighting guy come in and, and he brought out all the gobos and stuff i'm like why don't we keep using this stuff this makes everything look amazing Every a white wall is, is is suddenly like a cool gooky environment with just the right gobo, you know? Oh yeah. Yeah, oh, well, yeah I I think the look of the film, I mean it's undeniable that that's a, a huge part of why it had so much impact. 
because that black and white and they utilized it so well it's so stark and that right. it, it sticks in your head you know and and you see those horrible colorization attempts that were made with the movie <laughs> oh my god it's so awful oh man i think the first time i saw it colorized they had colored like ties and shirts and some background stuff and the skin yeah. and everything else was just still shades of gray it just uh-huh. looks terrible. But yeah, it was just like spot color. Uh, yeah. I will say I refuse to watch the colorized version of of the original. I just you know, uh, no interest. I'm even more purist than that. I don't even like to see it restored. I like to see it all grainy and scratchy, <laughs> and because I feel like there was a reality to it. I think you know what what you were saying earlier about it being like a documentary or a slightly amateurish. You know, I think th- it's effective in a similar way that uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is effective because mm-hmm. it has this kind of almost documentary feel to it, and mm-hmm. it almost feels like something maybe you shouldn't be watching. Yeah. Where, where did this film even come from? Mm-hmm. And and I and I feel like the fact that, you know, most of those prints for television look like they were run over by a truck. <laughs> I feel like that added to it. I honestly feel that that extra abstraction, not only is it black and white, but it's grainy and scratchy. I just mm-hmm. feel like it gave it this dimension of where did this film come from? Right. I, I, I how agree. are we even watching this? Right. My- Wife was asking, "Why is it so blurry?" I'm like, "That's part of the fun of the film." I mean, I have a, a bad copy on DVD of probably a bad VHS transfer, and it just it, it really sucks you in. And like I said, she having never seen this before, just like loved it. It's too bad that people are not open. You know, we have a lot of people in the world who can't watch a black and white movie. We have a lot of people in the world that can't watch an old movie yeah. because mm-hmm. they're so used to everything being 4K and crystal clear. I hate that that thing on modern TVs that makes everything look like a Spanish soap opera. It's <laughs> like, how how is it? Why would anyone want Ghostbusters to look like it's shot on a soundstage of The Price is Right? I don't understand. Uh-huh. <laughs> Why would you want that much clarity? That 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 little bit of gauze, that little bit of softness, it's like looking at right. a painting or looking at mm-hmm. you know where you, where it becomes uh, you know like again that abs- that 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 abstraction is supposed to suck you in and 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 help right. you kind of transition that uh, suspension of disbelief, and and it's just like I cannot believe that people who were that spoiled to where they can't watch anything that is not. Uh, you know, completely clean, you know? Well, people used to be artists with with lighting. I mean, you think about something like the original Star Trek and the way they used to light Mm -hmm. the sets for mood and people look at it. I've heard some really just ignorant people remark, well, there's backgrounds are like purple and yellow and red. It's not realistic. It's like, no, it's not realistic. It's people in outer space hundreds Mm -hmm. of years in the future. It's mood and, you know, it's affecting you on an emotional level. It's like, quit nitpicking it. It doesn't have to look real. It just has to look good. And that stuff looked good. Well, think about what people do now, though. What do they, they get those LED strips and they put them under the shelves or whatever, and suddenly their walls are pink or green or yellow. <laughs> right, right. That's true. 
Yeah, there is more uh, people are bringing creative lighting into their real lives a lot more, you know, uh, so maybe that will be more realistic uh, mm. as things go on. But honestly, it's not about realism all the time. You know, there is a lot of it is 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 fantasy. And, mm -hmm. and, and, you know, there's two kinds of filmmaking. There's descriptive and there's prescriptive. And sometimes things are not about how things are but maybe how they could be or would be or should be and and that's a different kind of storytelling right uh, definitely I, I i very much agree i you know i'm the kind of guy i'd rather watch uh you know tom chasing jerry than schindler's list and, and schindler's <laughs> is a very important film but i live in reality daily and especially in this year 2020 I need to find out that Vader really is Luke's father. I need to find out, you know, that these zombies are, really? you know, attacking the fart. Right, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to watch Empire Strikes Back tonight. Thank you. <laughs> there you I, I go. Should have said spoiler alert. <laughs> no, the, the escape, the escapism of Night of the Living Dead. I mean, if you think about it, you have that nice, calm scene at the beginning with Barbara and Johnny in the cemetery. And as soon as that first ghoul shows up, it's just an unrelenting nightmare, right? Right till the end. I mean, even if, even when they have because like it starts off. I mean, you see the title "Night of the Living Dead," and here we are in the day in a serene, you know, setting. Yeah, they they've driven hours to go, you know, pay their respects to their father because their mother couldn't make. They're, they're giving you this whole background on these two characters, and one of them is out of the picture within like the first five minutes. Yeah. There goes Johnny. Yeah, it's interesting. It's definitely a good fake out because you really believe that 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 story is going to be about those two, you know, right. when it starts off. And uh, it, it, it takes a quick 90 degree turn real fast as soon as that sun starts coming down. Uh, and, um, you know, I've been to that cemetery. Have you guys been to the Evans City uh, no, Cemetery? No, of course I have. never have. So uh, it, there's a a convention out here called monster bash and in pittsburgh and uh area pittsburgh area and uh it's just it's drivable from there and um you know it, it's so funny because everybody does the same thing i thought i was so clever because you know i went and laid my head down on that uh one stone that uh <laughs> uh johnny hits his head on and then i sort of peek around that other big stone that barbara's looking around in that fam famous picture of her and uh, uh, you know, I, I'm like walking around reenacting these scenes, and every single person, whether they're a scholar of the movie or not, does the exact same thing. <laughs> Everybody is there wants like a to line, be in that place. Mr. Lobo? There is, isn't is there a, like a lot of people? <laughs> no, no, there isn't a line. But okay. but it was really funny when I got back to the convention and I'm showing everybody my pictures, and then they're showing me theirs, and we're, we basically <laughs> all took the same pictures. Uh. But uh, it's it's uh, it's amazing that 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 uh, cemetery still exists. And, uh, you know, and, and I think that the interesting thing about that movie is that it's not a Hollywood movie. It's a local movie. You know, like the blob is like that, yeah. too, which is in Pennsylvania. Also, it's like all those locations are right here. I eat at that diner. I go to that movie theater sure. and it's like, you know, there's something really amazing about a whole town getting together and saying, oh, yeah, let's make a movie. And then it be, and then it's like there it becomes part of their local pride where it's part of them forever. And everyone who grows up in that region, you know, just the way we felt about creature features or whatever our favorite shows were that were local, um, you, you know, in L.A. or wherever, you know, it, it, there's point. this pride, this this pride that comes right. out. 
Well, we do we do have the Milpitas monster, you know. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and every horror fan, it's got to talk about the Milpitas monster, you know, because it was made right there. Did they have the claw at the Milpitas Mall for a while? It was it was like um, like one of its nails or something. I I don't think it's there anymore. Oh. It was over in the automotive section. They used to do a yearly screening of it in Milpitas at one of the theaters, but I don't know if they've oh, done it the last yeah. couple. Robert Sherrill was a guy was... who made the movie, and he uh, he still takes it around and shows it here and there. But I'd yeah. love to do it on Cinema Insomnia. I'd love to host it. It'd be fun to do that. You should try. You know, we were talking offline before we started the show about um, some of these virtual sets um even beyond like blue screen or green screen now they just digitize everything and you know you'll never be able to as a fan go to that set unless you go to that studio and they turn on all the monitors for you but there's something you know like you said to be able to sit down in a diner and say oh you know this film was filmed here it was um the orwigs did that book um we covered oh, yeah. where monsters um, walk yeah. where monsters walk and and they covered a lot of the films the early uh monster films and and you know where they were and you can find them and and go visit but um yeah I, i'm moving forward we're not going to have that opportunity it's kind of sad Oh yeah, yeah, right. If you, if everything is on a green screen and it's somebody talking to a yeah. ping pong ball, where are all the cool props? <laughs> well, yeah, I was cool I was one year I was down and, at where are uh, the cool locations. Yeah, one year I was down at Bob Burns' place, and he's he was telling us he goes, you know, people used to stop by my house and drop off props and things. Now they just give me discs. <laughs> <laughs> I can see, you know, like you go and you take a picture next to a computer. Oh, this is the computer where they made this scene. <laughs> well, you know, and even Bob Burns's gig is a gorilla man. Now you just, you know, you pop in your uh, model, your 3D model of your silverback mountain gorilla, and you, you don't go and hire Bob Burns to be your gorilla in your movie anymore. That's true. We we visited the Monterey Zoo. Um, well, which is actually in Salinas, but that's beyond the point. Uh, besides the point, and a lot of the animals that they had—lions. There was a little monkey, a spider monkey. They they would um, truck them down to Los Angeles to do commercials, or um, Bruce Almighty, you know, used their monkey. Um, and, and they don't get the call anymore because everything is digital or CGI. Yeah. What was that movie that came out? Uh, was it this year or last year with Harrison Ford and a dog? And then the whole oh, the yeah. whole movie, the dog yeah, is Call, CG, call of the Wild. One scene, oh, a real wild. dog. Right, right. But I thought you were going to say when you went to that zoo that all the animals were CG. You <laughs> <laughs> just have LED screens that, and cages. <laughs> that is going to be the future. Right. You just go to a digital zoo. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, look, they 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 brought back um, Peter Cushing for um, what was that Star Wars um, Rogue One, and he was yeah. CG. Yeah, that yeah. was that was actually kind of uh, chilling. I was I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> I, was, I had mixed feelings the first time I saw that. Yeah, I, I think if they did that with any other actor, it might have worked. But yeah. I had seen Peter Cushing in so many movies over the years, and you kind of know all his quirks and his expressions and everything and when you're looking at Rogue One it's like he's just not quite right Yeah, you know? and he should be a foot shorter 
<laughs> uh, you know, the, the, he's not quite right, but honestly, the guy who was doing the the motion capture and the acting, I mean, I felt like they could have just had him be Peter Cushing for a couple of scenes. I don't think that they really needed to fully CG Peter Cushing. Like, I feel like they could have just maybe had... Uh, you know, if they need to change someone's eye color or something to make him resemble him a little bit more. I don't think it's that necessarily bad to have, you know, I mean, it's like I've, gr- I've grown up with, with Bewitched where like the one Darren disappeared and then, you know, the other, you know, Dick Sargent mm-hmm. disappeared and then Dick York shows up or the other way around. Sergeant York. That's so weird. <laughs> yeah, vice versa. They, they both have the same first name and then their last names make another person's name. Now you know the secret. So uh, they really didn't want people to know, right? <laughs> it's so, voodoo. So Dick, Dick, you know, I mean, I've grown up with Bewitched and other things where it's like, you know, it's like it's a character. That person's not there to play that character anymore. And we just have another actor play the character. Right. I'm, I'm not that I'm not that offended by that. I'm more offended about. You know, okay, they wanted to play the character, and then they they don't they don't let them. They just go recast it because they yeah. want a younger, hipper actor or something. Mm-hmm. It seems but, unnecessary. Well, I mean, but, we were just talking about the Bond films before we came on here. It's like, yeah, how many Bonds have you had? And now everybody's yeah, like, right. okay, who's the next Bond? It's kind of like an how event. Many, how many Doctor Who's have we had? Mm-hmm. Uh, See, point. they came, they came up with that whole regeneration thing. That was brilliant. Yeah, yeah. It's like now nice. anyone can be Doctor Who. You know, kid. You know, uh, you know. If you're a person who loves imagination and imagine and films of imagination, you've got that kid inside of you. Any explanation is fine, right? If they go, oh yeah, no, no, this is this is Earth Two, Peter Cushing. Oh, all right, yeah, that's fine. You know, <laughs> oh no, this is his clone. We had a, you know, the Emperor had a clone of Cushing just in case the Death Star blew up. I mean, any sort of minor story adjustment would instantly make probably half the audience accept it. They just, it doesn't have to be an origin story, just any explanation of any sort that that they could possibly put category that they could put it under, they could be fine with. Well, you know, I don't, I don't think they could ever totally recreate like Dwayne Jones. No. Bringing us no. back to Night of the Living Dead, by the way. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, thank you for doing that. I, we were segue. getting into Star Wars territory, which would have derailed the podcast for four hours. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I th- Yes, Dwayne Jones was amazing. And the fact that we had uh, a leading man uh, using, let's see, which, which term can I use that just fails utterly? A person of color. I'll just pick that one. Uh, but, you know, the thing, the reality of it is that he was the best actor they can find. Right. And mm-hmm. that's the most beautiful thing about that is he was the best actor and they and and the George Romero didn't think, oh, you know, some people might not go see this movie if we have a black guy as the lead. So, you know, uh, so, you know, he didn't think like that. He thought, you know, this is the best actor I can find. He's perfect for this role. And having him there gave them a cinematic opportunity, especially when it, it, the movie has sort of a countercultural theme. Like, you know, I've mm-hmm. heard him talk on this before where it's like the end of the status quo. It's 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 like, you know, the, you wake up one morning and the world's not yours anymore. Some it belongs to somebody else. And and I think that he was very much commenting on uh, on the sort of the the 60s and and the changes that were coming and and the, um, you know, the youth culture that was coming up. And uh, so I think that he he 
kind of had a little bit of social commentary in there. But having Dwayne Jones as the lead punctuated that so much harder when the when the militia comes in and kind of just, you know, just decides to clean house and just puts him out like a zombie after he's been the hero for two hours. You know, that 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 I feel like really, uh, you know, that 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 gave that movie that it gave the social aspects of, of the messages of that movie so much more punch because Dwayne Jones was in there. But on top of that. What a charismatic and and amazing actor he was, and and he just you know carries entire scenes. It's like they've got no budget for this amazing truck explosion that we never saw. <laughs> we we have to just sit here and listen to him explain it, but we're into it because he's an interesting guy, and we're with him, you know. So it's cool. Exactly. Yeah, I mean his whole monologue about being at the diner and seeing you know people seeing the one truck getting you know, engulfed with ghouls and then the way he got out of there. But I think the, the best thing about it is, and you know, it was a character. It wasn't written to be any ethnicity. It was just a character. And by casting him, they didn't make a point at any part of the film to point out his, his ethnicity. He was just another character. Sure. You know, and then at the end they didn't say, you know, Hey, sh- shoot the black guy in the house. You know, it's like, well, and 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 fortune and good and to George Romero's credit or John Russo's credit, no one like rewrote the character because they cast right. it. Oh well, maybe mm-hmm. maybe he's into soul music. Maybe he could <laughs> sing a little song for us. Yeah, you know they didn't right. do any like uh, kind of in, uh, culturally insensitive changes right. to try to make him more black or something. You know, so uh, which it happens a lot, uh, and not to derail for. Uh, another film but you know in in star trek in the naked time when they're all sort of going crazy on the enterprise and and becoming you know kind of succumbing to all their inner fantasies uh it was written that sulu was supposed to be a samurai right Mm -hmm. and he was like i didn't want to be a samurai i wanted to be errol flynn when i was a kid (laughs) and and the fact that they one allowed that two embraced that and made no apologies for it. It's like you know what he he's a he. It's not he's not defined by his race. He's a human being, and he mm-hmm. you know and his this is his, this is what his this is what his you know uh, uh, when his 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 id is <laughs> released. He's he's Errol Flynn with us with as a swashbuckler. You know that I anyhow I would just sort of I think it's the same kind of thing where it's like you know you're writing a character and a fully dimensional character and you're not just making concessions because you think you have to. Right. Well I think anytime people start seeing somebody of a particular race, ethnicity, religion, whatever, as some sort of monolithic group that, you know, has to oh they all everybody has these characteristics. I mean that's silly and crazy and insulting. Um yeah. And right. yeah, Dwayne, Dwayne Jones, obviously, I did a little reading on him. Very um, well-educated guy, obviously an excellent actor. And uh, they were saying that the original lines were written for, he was, the character was supposed to be a truck driver and he didn't really like the lines that much. So he kind of changed them. Uh, so to suit him better. And, mm-hmm. it, you know, like you're saying, about the uh, monologue where he was talking about the seeing that the truck get chased down and the people in the diner get eaten and all that. Now, I guess a lot of that came from him kind of rewriting 
those lines and it worked wow. really well you know well he was so, a uh, he was a college professor for a while yeah he, he was yeah. a college professor i mean this 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 a, you know yeah, he, he was very tormented and i know he didn't he didn't really like talking about the movie uh afterwards uh i know that he he, he sort of avoided interviews and stuff like that. And did he ultimately commit suicide? Do we know the word on him? Oh, I don't yeah, know. I don't know how he died. I know. I, I think he had a very tragic and sad yeah. end. cancer. Oh, that's unfortunate. We yeah, should it was like 19, 1988, I think he passed away. It makes but. sense. But yeah, Dwayne, Dwayne Jones, though. But, you know, he, he was, uh, you know, I think it's the unfortunately, the only, we never got to see him in a dozen other movies. You know, that would have been nice. Well, and it's interesting, too, because, you know, you also have Harry Cooper um, and he's, you know, just a belligerent, un- unpleasant guy in a lot of ways. And they could have easily made him a bigot and they didn't go that path. It was just more the argument about, hey, I want to be down here in the basement. No, we should be up here. You're an idiot. You're an idiot. And it just it kind of goes back and forth between the two. And it doesn't really become a personalized at all it's a survival art but you certainly could read it that way if, oh you if could you if you want to, to. yeah yeah, yeah. Sure. I, I i think the ambiguity of it definitely also uh, uh gives it power too he wasn't a and bigot then, he was just an ass but, <laughs> yeah but no i mean carl carl hardman who played harry cooper and russell uh striner who played johnny they were actually producers on the film Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, hey, we need someone for this role, and we need someone without here. Jump in there. In fact, uh, Kira, yeah, in fact, Kira Stone was his daughter, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. his his daughter in the movie, but his daughter in real life. Real life as well. And I actually, I actually read somewhere that that Kira Stone played that corpse at the top of the stairs. Oh, mm-hmm. with the eye. Yeah, and when Dwayne Jones like drags the corpse. You know, to wherever it doesn't really show where they drag it to, but he starts dragging that corpse. Yeah, that's Kira Shone in the in the rug or the blanket or whatever. Well, she was probably the lightest person in the cast. So. Uh, that's true. <laughs> uh, so a little bit on Dwayne Jones, just to remove my foot from my mouth, is that he died of cardiopulmonary arrest, something with his heart, sudden mm-hmm. loss of blood flow. So that could go a, a lot of directions. Uh, I, and he had been in some other movies. He was in Beat Street, of all things, which hmm. I remember seeing in 1984 wow. when they had uh, what were the two breakdancing movies that came out at the exact same time. <laughs> That's right. It was like Breaking break break and Beats. I think Breaking and Beat Street came out like the same the same weekend uh, in 1984. But yeah, he was in that and he was oh. in... Uh, Ganja and Hess, and he was in Losing Ground and Vampires, 1986, the movie oh. Vampires, <laughs> and to, to Die For and Negatives in '88 and Fright House in '89. So you know, it's interesting you hear these urban legends because I had heard that he had died very early and that he had, he was uh, very sour on his career and committed suicide. And that's uh, not the case from anything I'm immediately finding. So it is interesting how there's so many kind of uh, urban legends and things associated with this movie. I think everybody has their own, you know, weird stories they've heard about the making of the movie or, you know, I think they even played on this in Return of the Living Dead where, you know, the the, the Night of the Living Dead really happened and it was a cover-up. <laughs> you know, I, I... Brilliant. Yes, yes. 
uh, you know, and that's an interesting aspect that we don't have time for, but how John Russo and uh, 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 George Romero kind of had a split where they just both decided to make sequels independently of each other. Um, so, well, you know, let's a lot have, of, to have you back, Mr. Lobo, and talk about that, because I'm a huge fan of, of Return of the Living Dead. Well, if you can see behind me, I have a giant VHS tape replica of <laughs> and I've got the Return of the Living two return three four five Return of the Living Dead posters around it so yeah it's yes. it's probably one of my all time favorite go to uh, horror movies I just think it's the right amount of funny and scary and uh, inventive and I kind of like uh, I like my zombies to be a little sci-fi and it's got a little that too and mm-hmm. it's I just, I just think it's. Really, I think Dan O'Bannon's treatment of it, 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 his attempt to not step on George Romero's toes by going in a different direction was, was brilliant. And they were never able to re- to get back there with any of the sequels. But he, right. he, he just did it. I thought. I think that movie is so fun. It's it's the punk rock zombie movie, and you know those are two great tastes that taste great together. <laughs> well, you talk about John Russo. I mean, everybody credits. George Romero for coming up with these ghouls, zombies, whatever, and the whole lore. But it was actually, it was actually Russo that wrote the original That's screenplay right. and came up with the idea of of these bodies coming back to life and living on the living off of the dead or eating or eating the living. Um, That's that was basically all his idea, not George Romero's. Yeah, yeah, it, it definitely you, you have a, a situation. You have a dark star situation where you've got two geniuses on the same movie. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, I think that you know Dan O'Bannon and John Carpenter ended up hating each other uh, on Dark Star, and and unfortunately after Night of the Living Dead, I think uh, George Romero and and John Russo kind of went their separate ways too. Um, you know, uh, John Russo's here in Pennsylvania. He's kind of a local boy. I see him pretty often. I always buy weird stuff from him. We got a paperback copy of Return of the Living Dead, uh, the novel, for like 20 bucks, which is the cheapest I've ever <laughs> seen it, ever. Mm-hmm. And signed. <laughs> hey, I've got I've got the novel for, hanging out at his table. I've got the novel for Night of the Living Dead. I, I unburied it the other night. And uh, yeah, it was written by John Russo, and the cover price was a dollar ninety-five. Oh wow! Now j- just move the decimal point. Yeah, <laughs> but I actually bought it for a dollar ninety-five because I bought it like through one of those uh, elementary school book club things. They, Scholastic. Yeah. Did you get a pencil topper or did you? Oh, probably get any, a poster. But I used to go through. Poster? I used to go through all those. Poster and like a, a fuzzy pencil <laughs> yeah. topper. No, I used to go through all those and I would pick out all the, you know, sci-fi movie books or the horror monster books or whatever. And yeah, they had Night of the Living Dead one time, so I grabbed that. Holy crap! Uh, uh, now, Night of the Living Dead. Uh, I guess what, what do we? Where do we want to go with with next? We want to talk about, I guess, the the zombie legacy, right? Because I mean, it's, we haven't really, really mentioned that this is kind of like the first tech quote unquote zombie. They don't ever use the Z word in the whole movie. They're ghouls technically right. in the movie, but really, the whole format for the whole zombie genre pretty much starts there, right? Well, in the, in the Romero films, what's the first film where they actually said zombie? Was that Dawn or Day or? I think it might be Dawn, maybe? Maybe? Maybe Dawn. Day. I think Day. Which is 83, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I mean, going I back, 
for be other f- films that called them zombies before. Yeah, but we'd have I, to look into that. But going might, going you know back, what might have done it retroactively. Is that when Dawn of the Dead came out, the Italian version was called Zombie. Ah, so the Italian the Italian Zombie Two, which is Fulci's. Uh, kind of uh, unauthorized sequel to Do- to Dawn of the Dead is Zombie 2 famously Zombie 2 right so yeah. which is which is so so in, in Italy's world zombie that that series is is are the zombie movies so maybe worldwide that's where that kind of got popularized i'm not sure someone else could probably correct me on well, that too I just asked the all-knowing internet. <laughs> Tell me, it's, Alexa. It says, I wish I had that voice. I, I can't quite do it. Uh, says the word zombie is used exclusively by Romero in the script for Dawn of the Dead. Okay. Ah, okay. So there so you go. So Dawn of the Dead is the is really the, the start of that. And, and Romero was probably, might be at the heart of the zombie flip, which is interesting because zombies before that were always controlled you know you always had kind of the voodoo zombies where you had the the boker who like like in white zombie or in films like that where they were controlling the zombies mm-hmm. and the zombies were a horde that were controlled by someone else what's interesting about these zombies is that there's no mastermind you know uh they they just kind of they, they uh, like the thing from return of the living dead they're just being animated you chop up all the little bits and the little bits come after you you know we don't really know why they're homicidal you know we don't really know why that they uh, feed on the living. There's not a lot of why. They just sort of are. They just kind yeah. of they they appear. They've got they've got this this bloodlust built into them, and and that is their only program is to destroy us. Yeah, they're like an infection more than mm-hmm. anything else. Mm-hmm. But then again, there could be like a modern re uh, modern sequel where they say, "Oh no, this guy was really behind the whole thing." <laughs> well, I, I know it was Blofeld. Yeah, you know, the whole voodoo thing. The zombies. You'd bring them back to be a slave. You know, you need someone to build a fence or patch the roof. You you know, bring that person back through whatever voodoo ritual. And it was the horror genre, the films or, or novelizations that made them into these evil, um, you know, transitioned them from ghouls into zombies where they had to eat the living, uh, you know, for, for survival rather than for, you know, just yeah. sport, I guess. It is interesting that it's that it's, that it's kind of like um, they're, they're we're on their food chain somehow where it's just sort <laughs> yeah. of like they just real they just know that okay if I again Return of the Living Dead did a great job of filling that in where uh, you know there's the pain of being right. dead it's painful yeah. to be dead and the only thing that sort of stops that pain and I don't know how you figure that out trial and error <laughs> is eating the brains of the living right. Yeah. So, uh, or the intestines of the living, or just eating the living in just general. The living, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, so you know it, that's an interesting thing, and and it, it sort of makes them more sad. You know, where it's it's, a, it's a, there's a tragedy there, almost in the same way of a vampire that needs blood. They 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 they're living a different kind of life than we know, and we're just kind of in their way. I think um, zombies and, and vampires, you mentioned vampires, they're at the top of the food chain. We're used to being, you know, humans at the top of the food chain, at least on this planet. 
Yeah, and I think that that's what that movie's about is a switch yeah. of power where suddenly right. you wake you wake up and you're not on the top anymore, you know. Um, and uh, you know, and and my attitude's kind of bad because I kind of feel like, all right, you know, we had a good run, you know. <laughs> <laughs> let's stop shooting zombies let them raise their families let them t- let you know they'll probably do a better job than what we did just you know it's their planet now just let them have it stop stop shooting them let them raise their families let them let them let them do, have, start their own communities and maybe they'll maybe they'll do a better job so, you know, zombies or apes one of the two that's like the I am legend, and and Romero admits he borrowed a lot from Matheson's I am legend. Yeah, I think Carnival of Souls and I am legend and a lot of things that played, and I'm eating like a jerk, I'm sorry. <laughs> eating um, brain, what brains. Eating? Brains. Brains. Yeah. Mm, brains. Um, uh, but a lot of the films that they watched with Chili Billy Cardilly, who was their Bob Wilkins, their horror host, they watched his show on their local uh, Pittsburgh station. And, um, you know, they saw all those shows like Carnival of Souls and, 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 um, uh, uh, the, I am legend, uh, the oh, movie, last, which man is on last man on earth with Vincent price, you know, th- those movies, they kind of internalized all those movies. Um, like every director does, they take all the stuff from when they were kids or when they were younger or things that influenced them. And, uh, and then they re, kind of uh, tell it with their own uh, spin on every, on right. it. You know, I, I feel like every legitimate, every director tries to legitimize the stuff that their mom hated, you know? <laughs> so it's like, you know, if, if you're George Lucas, your mom probably hated those adventure serials that you're watching. If you were Quentin Tarantino, your mom probably hated all those crime exploitation movies that you were renting. So, you know, I, I kind of feel like, you know, a lot of a lot of people are just trying to make a versions of the B stuff that they loved when they were kids. I think a lot of directors do that. True. They're trying to legitimize their own love of love for something. Well, look, kids, we're coming up towards the end of the podcast. So we're going to do a round. Last, I know (laughs) (laughs) any last thoughts or comments, uh, anyone wants to make. Well, I mean, I'll jump in and, uh, I think one of the, the strongest parts of Night of Living Dead, which we haven't talked about, was the newscasts in the background. Yeah. Because, you know, you're following these, this group of people in the farmhouse, but it's the newscasts that are letting you know that this is a global phenomenon and it's happening all over. And some of the descriptions, like the one guy talks about the cadaver with no arms, no legs, but it came up, tank came to life and tried to move and things like that. It's like all the imagery that that puts into your, into your head. And that, I think they did that also. in like the slime people, they had a lot of the news stuff in the background. You know, that, when you say that, when you describe it like that, you know what it makes me think of is war of the worlds. And I never quite put that yeah. spin on oh, yeah. night of the living dead before, but it definitely has that, that kind of, you know, uh, this invasion that's that, that, that we that is kind of being told to us in an oral way, you know. That, right. There's that narrative and it, it kind yeah. of gives us insight that the characters who we're watching don't necessarily have. Yeah. What, very what cool. really struck me this last time watching it without getting too political here, but um, 
how the characters were relying on the newscast and saying, well, let's watch it. The authorities will tell us what to do. (laughs) And uh, I going through what we've been through the last few months and thinking about that and like, I don't think anybody's looking for the authorities to tell us. Well, I mean, they they tell you. You can't stay tell inside. Me to stay away from zombies. I have my rights. <laughs> well, they tell you, you know, stay inside, and then a few minutes later, they're like, "Oh no, no, go out! We've got armed troops at these different places. You can go out to these shelters." And so, right. I mean, they don't even get it right, really. Well, yeah. and Jasmine's the type of person that likes to talk back to the screen. So whenever the <laughs> news would come on and say, "Go to these shelters," she's like, "Why aren't you guys going to the shelters? Shoot them in the head." Jesus, they said shoot him in the head, you guys. Why aren't you listening? I'm like, okay, they're not watching the newscast that we're doing, you know. Uh, Yeah, what a great film. What a lasting impact. Uh, The fact that we're still talking about it today and what, 1968? What are we talking about? Uh, 52 years or more? Yeah. Uh, you know, that is really the testament of a good film that, you know, where there's this lasting resonance. I mean, does anybody know what the A movie was uh, that came out at the same time? Was it Planet of the Apes? It's amazing to me that a movie that was probably made on a tenth of the budget or less has as much or more resonance than something that 20th Century Fox had all their resources at their disposal for, you know? I think think they raised like 114,000. What's that, Bob? Yeah, no, it was 114,000 is what they raised for Night Living Dead. That's what the budget was. That's amazing. That's amazingly cheap because just the film alone would have cost a lot. Yeah, I think they they like uh, figured out it was equivalent to like 800,000 or something today. And I think they all put in, I don't know if it what the number was, but everybody chipped in like 6,000 or something. Yeah, that's what Mm. I read. Yeah. Yeah, and then they had to get more. But I mean, Romero and uh, I think it was, was, uh, I think Russell and Romero were both like making documentaries before that and commercials and, you know. Office well, they training were mad films because and they things. would they would have these high end clients and then and then their clients would once they got bigger would just take their business to New York or L A or a different house to get their stuff made so they yeah. never got the chance to do the things they wanted to so they just did it themselves. Interesting. And I think that that is a as a great thing of that is it, it was a do it yourself movie and like what you guys are doing you guys are doing it yourself <laughs> this is your radio you know this is a radio program. For the internet, we just you wish know, we had one hundred fourteen thousand. <laughs> <laughs> it's more like okay, fourteen. Let's bucks. all put in six dollars. <laughs> That's right, six bucks. Uh, who's got it? All right, who's first? All right, I got my six bucks there on the go. table. We're gonna make. We're gonna take this podcast to the top. Uh, you know, I I think that uh, again, I think it, it, it's a, it, it's it's a lasting thing. I think that it every generation finds it. You know, when I first showed it on Cinema Insomnia, and I know we were trying to wrap this up, but when I first showed it on Cinema Insomnia, I thought, well, this is what Bob Wilkins showed me. I'm not really doing anything other than a parody of what he used to do uh, or, or a, you know, a, a spoof of what a horror host does, you know, because everyone's seen this movie. Everybody knows this movie. And then I'm getting into my car and some 16-year-old girl runs up to me and says, I saw Night of the Living Dead for the first time Saturday night, Mr. Lobo. Oh, my God. And I thought, oh, wow, I showed that to them. I am forever linked to that experience for them. 
you right. know? Really cool. And it made me take my job so much more seriously. I really thought I, for, for the first year, I really thought I was Count Floyd. I really thought I was, <laughs> I was a parody of a horror host for somebody who remembers what a horror host is. I never, ever counted on there being more young people coming in. Never, ever thought that, that it would be more than just nostalgia. That is very cool. But thank you so much for having me on. Are we supposed to plug ourselves? Is that what happens? We will, Karen. You, you have any last words, Karen? Oh no, I think we've we've done a good job wrapping it up, and let's you know move along to our censor sweep. Unless you've got something. There. I will say I uh, I appreciate Mr. Lovo his comment about the Italian zombie film. Uh, you know, and and we were talking about the, the, who coined the zombie, and you know, found out that it was actually Romero. But I could imagine the Italians, come with the amo ghoul. No, 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 would have been an interesting conversation to yeah. uh, be privy to. But yes, we are at that part of our show where we would traditionally have our censor sweep, and Mr. Lobo. You're yes. on the show. You, we appreciate you being on. We hope you come oh, on again. My in the pleasure. Future. So fun. I, it went by too fast. I think we could have gone for another 16 hours. On <laughs> All right, let's do it. A marathon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, Mr. Lobo, please share with us. You know, I have a couple of copies of your uh, of your show, Cinema Insomnia, on DVD and Blu-ray. Um, the Night of the Living Dead, Bob Wilkins Halloween special. But please share with our listeners, how can they locate you uh, on the Internet? How can they find some of your wares and products? Sure. Thank you. I'll try to I'll try to be quick. Uh, there's a, unfortunately you're, you're forced to fragment yourself so much these days on so many different media. Uh, you know, I, I uh, this year because of uh, you know unfortunate events, we're not doing as many as much live stuff. So at least I don't have a million of those things to plug. But, uh, you know, we, if you're just starting out, you've never seen me before. We've got four episodes on Amazon Prime of Cinema Insomnia, which includes the Bob Wilkins special. Nice. Uh, if you have seen me before, there's hundreds of episodes on Vimeo. I have my own streaming channel called OSI 74 for Roku. So if you add OSI 74 for Roku, I even have old creature feature stuff on there. I've got old, old cartoons, other horror hosts, lots of weird stuff on OSI 74 for Roku. Uh, I have a YouTube channel for Cinema Insomnia. I have a YouTube channel for Mr. Lobo. Uh, I'm on Twitch. I did a live stream on Cinema Insomnia. I did a live stream last night on Twitch where we showed a double feature and I was in the chat with the fans. Um, we do live events. We're doing a, a Blade Runner event in November. Uh, you know, we just uh, uh, I, I, cinemainsomnia.com uh, is is I guess a the the show. Uh, I'm on Facebook. There's a Mr. Lobo fan group, Mr. Lobo Cinema Insomnia fan group. You get the DVDs from Alpha Video. There's 17 titles on Alpha Video, including Night of the Living Dead, <laughs> and. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I'm the easiest person to find on the internet. Look up Mr. Lobo, Cinema Insomnia. This is our 19th year wow. doing the show. Uh, we're doing our 20th anniversary next year. I want to do something special, but honestly, I have no idea and yet. Night of Living Dead. But thank you so much for having me on and, and letting me plug all my stuff. Yeah, that was that great is, having you on. You know, uh, my first exposure to Mr. Lobo was Thrillville. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, those live shows, I, I love Cinema Insomnia. Don't get me wrong. I love the theme song. I love Miss Mittens. I love all the <laughs> uh, <laughs> hardcore. Um, if you're going to drop Miss Mittens on a podcast, hey, I, I have my Mr. Lobo decoder ring here. Oh, somewhere. wow. Yeah. So Bob, Bur- uh, Bob Burns has one of those, too. Oh, nice. <laughs> but yeah, it was a lot of fun to have you on the show. We appreciate you uh, being on. Hope to have you on again in the future at some point. I love it. All right. On that note, this will conclude this transmission from Planet 8. We would like to thank all of our intergalactic audience for listening. Be sure to head on over to our website at www.planet8podcast.com where you can get more information on this episode's topic. For more conversation, find us on Twitter at Planet8Cast. Or on Facebook at facebook.com slash planet8podcast. We want to thank you guys for tuning in each and every episode. We look forward to your input and opinions. Until next time, this is Planet 8 signing off. End transmission. By George, he's got it. It is the end. All law enforcement agencies and the military have been organized to search out and destroy the marauding ghouls. The Survival Command Center at the Pentagon has disclosed that a ghoul can be killed by a shot in the head or a heavy blow to the skull. Officials are quoted as explaining that since the brain of a ghoul has been activated by the radiation, the plan is kill the brain and you kill the ghoul. Let's go get him. That's another one for the fire.